0: We're happy to make podcasts available for selected ed webinars for your listening pleasure. If you'd like to receive a CE certificate, you must watch the video recording. Recordings and quizzes can be found in the EdWebinar archives. Please visit home.edweb.net slash podcasts for more information.
1: Hello everyone again. Thanks so much for being with us today. I'm Emily Sumner and I'll be your host for the next hour. Today's webinar is brought to you by EdWeb and Parent Powered, the creator of an accessible evidence-based family engagement curriculum for birth through eighth grade that supports, inspires, and activates parents and caregivers with simple strengths-based insights they can turn into everyday teachable moments. So we'll go ahead and get started on the program and I'd like to first welcome Maya Sussman, who is Senior Director of Product for Parent Powered.
0: Hello, everyone. Um, I'm Maya. I lead the product team at Parent Powered. We are the creators of Ready for K, which is an evidence-based family engagement program that's delivered via text messages. And I've spent the last 10 years or so developing products for students, for families, for educators, everything from data integrations at Clever to educational games at Osmo. And throughout all of this work, family and educator feedback has really been critical to helping us decide which new products to develop, how to improve our existing products, and how to determine what's really working with students and families. And one of my absolute favorite parts of my work now at Parent Powered is getting to read through the incredible feedback we receive from tens of thousands of parents and caregivers across the country. We use this feedback to evaluate the impact of our existing programs, and also to help us decide what future changes to make in order to better support families. So over the next hour, we're going to learn how to leverage parent feedback to drive student success and culture. In our time together, we will gain insight into how and when to ask families for input. We'll learn strategies for identifying themes and minimizing bias when analyzing feedback. We'll explore ways to prioritize and act on the feedback we receive. And we'll discover the importance of creating a feedback loop by following up with families after receiving their input. And we are so lucky today to have Dr. Kathy Tran and Dr. David Adler here to share their expertise with us. Kathy is a researcher and design strategist for educational products, including apps, television, museum exhibits, and board games. Her collaborations have centered around crafting educational and engaging experiences for kids while meaningfully involving and empowering parents and teachers. Previously, she led design research at Scholastic, ST Math, and Osmo. She received her master's in technology, innovation, and education from Harvard University and a Ph.D. in learning, cognition, and development from UC Irvine. David is the founder and director of innovation for Recontext Data Solutions, where he works with school districts, colleges, state education agencies, and education technology companies on issues related to education data, equity, and educational program implementation. He has over 20 years of experience in K 12 systems as a teacher, principal, and district administrator. And he's also served in a research capacity at policy and advocacy organizations such as the Opportunity Institute. David completed his PhD at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, where he studied the levers of institutional change in schools with a focus on educational leadership. So welcome, Kathy and David. Thank you
2: so much for joining us today.
3: Thank you for having us.
2: Yeah, thank you for having us. so great to have everyone around the nation. Um, Excited to be here. Awesome. So before we dive in, we would love to get all of
0: your feedback on a quick question. What is one thing you are hoping to learn from today's webinar? So you should see a poll pop up on your screen in just a minute. And we would appreciate you taking just a couple seconds to respond so we can make sure this webinar is meeting your needs. Um, I can see them before and now they. I think they're back. I think I got the the gist of it. It looks like um, (laughs) there's lots of folks here interested in how to make parents feel welcome and heard. So this question around creating a culture of engagement and feedback, um, and we will definitely be talking a lot about that. And then I saw a lot of folks interested in um, how to increase parent survey response rates. So we'll be we'll be touching on that as well for sure. Um, And this, thank you all for filling out the poll. This information is really helpful to us as presenters so we can make sure we're answering your questions. Um, And this poll is actually a great example of a really easy tool you could use to get some quick feedback from families about their interests and needs in a meeting or another event where you have them joining. So with that, I'm excited to jump in and hear from David and Kathy about some other strategies for gathering feedback from families. So we all know gathering feedback can sometimes feel like a big project to take on. David, how do you decide when it's worth the effort to ask families for their feedback?
3: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, You know, I think one of the things, the lens that I try to look through is that um, I always want to ask myself, you know, what's on the table? What's the decision that I'm gonna be making? What's the thing where I need feedback? What's the information that I need to gather from people? And I try really hard to be as transparent as possible in making that decision. You know, we wanna always engage with authenticity and I think we've all been a part of a process where people have asked our opinion when maybe they don't care about the answer or that they've asked and they care about the answer but they're not really clear about what is gonna be done with that information. And so it's important to recognize that there's a lot of reasons why we would ask for feedback. Um, Maybe we're asking because we want to help understand the community or the parents, and we want to understand their needs, and we want to actually use that information to make change. Um, Maybe it's because we're preparing for a program review, and we want to know what people's concerns are, and that helps us to craft our research. Um, Maybe we want to just make sure that people feel heard, um, and that's important too. But I think it's really important that in all of these circumstances, we're always really clear with people why we're trying to get the feedback from them and specifically what we're gonna be doing with that information. And I think this transparency is is super important. Um, I can give you an example. Um, I was I actually saw someone in the chat say that they were from Vermont, and uh, I was an administrator in Vermont for many years. Um, and uh, for those of you who don't know, several years ago, uh, Vermont changed its rules around education where they uh, they went to proficiency based graduation, which means that students would be graduating high school instead of based on uh, Carnegie units like three years of math and you know four years of English instead they had to demonstrate that they had uh, they had acquired the proficiencies necessary to be uh, successful graduates and each district was charged with defining what that meant locally, and I was in charge of that for our district and This led to a lot of fear from a lot of our families, a lot of concerns, you know, would our students still be competitive to get into college? What did that mean for AP classes? Would we be fundamentally changing the curriculum when students still be learning things in a rigorous and standardized way? A lot of concerns. And people would say, we can't do this. We need you to stop. And we would have to have these town hall meetings where we were gathering feedback and we were engaging with families, but we would have to say, We can't stop. It's the law. This is not a decision that we have made. And while you may be concerned about this, we're not going to not do this. Now, your feedback may help us to make decisions about how we do this. But conversations about the yes and no, the binary of it, are really not going to get us anywhere. So let's talk about what your concerns are. Let's talk about how we can and can't address them. And let's talk about, you know, what maybe, you know, you know, that may be correct and what you think, you know, that may be not correct. And can we address misinformation? And can we also just figure out how to get what you really want and need out of this conversation? And so I think being really transparent about that, about that we can't we we can't change the yes and no of it, but there are things that we can change and what those are, I think is really huge. And so I think, you know, to answer the question, being super clear about what it is we can change and what is on the table and being clear about what isn't on the table is, I think, a really important aspect of this.
0: Yeah, thank you. That that transparency is so important, really, no matter why you're asking for feedback, being clear with families about what they can expect may or may not happen as a result of providing that feedback. Totally. Uh, So Kathy, once you've decided to ask families for their input, what are some of the different strategies you might use to start gathering that feedback?
2: This question I've, I've thought about a lot and I've really evolved things I've done throughout the years. Um, I would say there are a few key things to consider. One is matching your goal with your method. Um, Two is making it as easy as possible for families to participate in giving feedback. And three, um, what David also mentioned is making their voices heard and making it clear what the impact of their feedback is. So the to the first point of matching the method with your goals, if the question, you know, is what pizza type should we be ordering for a school event? You know, a survey sent out what pizzas will your families be eating? How many people are there? Determining what to order based on that, um, based on the survey responses, works great. If it's, A question that requires or would benefit from more discussion and conversations, then a focus group at town hall may be a better method. For instance, if you're looking to, you know, construct a new playground that will also be the school playground and the community playground after school and on weekends, bringing in parents and community members to have that conversation where they can build on each other's conversations, but also it might benefit from some co-design sessions where, you know, families are in small groups, mocking up some ideas and sharing them. You'd get much richer data um, by bringing people together, especially in the early phases when you don't have the answers, right? So you don't know it's either going to be, you know, this kind of slide or this kind of slide. We've narrowed it down. Like at that point, then a survey or some other method would be better. But in these early stages, having the conversations would be beneficial. And then two, I think it's really important to make it as easy as possible for parents to participate. And I know one of the things that um, came up in the poll was how do we you know, increase our survey responses or just parent feedback participation in general For surveys, particularly, um, I think the very first question matters a lot. If it's if you're considering which after-school programs to partner with, for instance, the very first question being, "Are you interested in an after-school program for your child?" Yes or no is a very uh, is a way to just ease them into completing this survey and there's research and once people start the survey, they're much more likely to continue with it and finish it. But if the first question is, you know, tell us about your child's best after school or summer program ever, you know, and a huge text box for parents to just start typing like that can be overwhelming. That's when parents might just close it and maybe they'll think like, I'll come back to this later when I have time. Right now, I just have a few minutes. And they'll forget, right? So, even like very well meaning parents who want to give the feedback, they have so many competing demands. And also letting them know what the impact is upfront like, maybe the subject line of the email would be help us choose next year's after school programs and not um, survey, we want your feedback, you know, like make it very clear what the the impact would be for that. And so, you know, when you're doing the subject headlines, even, you know, in the survey, you know, you can mention based on this data, you know, we have options of which after school programs to partner with, and we'll consider the feedback we get in determining those partnerships. Um, that matters a lot. And then for things like town halls and you know, focus groups, things that are in person gatherings, say childcare matters. For parents with, you know, maybe like a toddler that isn't going to do well sitting in a town hall meeting, you know, maybe setting up a play space for them with the other parent or any other grownups might be there, sitting up near a playground, um, that helps. I think getting feedback during a time that parents are going to be on campus anyway, so it's not another trip for them, also helps. We put on um, a math fair with um, ST Math when I was working there. I remembered one of the things we had happened there was the, the feedback surveys were at the exit door and parents were leaving with tired, hungry kids. They weren't gonna stop and fill out a survey. And so we had to pivot. And what we ended up doing was having staff and volunteers just carry around the clipboards and walk with parents at the fair or while they're waiting in line and ask questions and fill out their responses that way, and was one way of going about that. And I think, um, oh, and then one other tactic that uh, technique that we came up with at a science festival where there was a show that families watched was, we had these little mini golf-sized pencils that kept rolling, or, rolling away underneath the chairs. And um, there was a survey there for families to fill out at the end. It didn't work out and they couldn't find their pens. There were just these empty surveys that were left. And so for later sessions, we redesigned the survey. Um, I mean, kind of like say you have a, a survey, like a piece of paper, the questions would be at the edges. And then if they were rating something from one to five, those numbers would also be at the edges and they would just tear where their response was. And so no need for finding pencils that rolled away or pulling out a pen from an overstuffed backpack. and So little things like that that we've kind of tinkered with um, to get response rates up and to make it super easy for families.
0: I love these strategies for for really lowering the barrier for families to participate, making it really easy for them. And just so important in order to make sure we're hearing from a, a diverse set of families and not just the ones that are already the most vocal or the most engaged. So let's say we've sent out our survey, we've hosted our meeting, we have a bunch of feedback now. Um, so let's talk about what we're going to do with all of that parent feedback and data. Um, Kathy, can you share some simple ways that you might begin identifying themes and sort of making
2: sense of the feedback you've gathered? Yeah, and that, that's a natural next step, right? So I think the quantitative data um, that you gather, you know, there you, you run the statistics, and there's um, there's more like consistent methods to analyzing that kind of data, and then qualitative data, the open-ended survey responses, what um, notes you have from focus group meetings and town halls, that can get a lot um, messier and more overwhelming to analyze. And so for qualitative specifically, if they're open ended survey responses, what the approach I like to take is to just download the data and then see what themes emerge from it. And so with open ended responses, say it's there is an open ended question about, um, you know, what what matters to an after school program? And this was at the end of the survey when. um Parents had ranked other factors, and that was just to catch what's left and what's missing, but anything else that parents wanted to share. I would just go look at those answers and, you know, start um, just reading through them and seeing what themes emerge from the outset. You know, oh, it looks like you know, having food there matters to parents. It looks like parents care a lot about homework help and homework being completed during these after-school programs, and just start to collect a list of these themes. And then once I kind of feel good about some of the themes that have been captured, I would pull, um, maybe you've got thousands and thousands of responses. I would pull like a random 100 responses and start labeling these different responses by these different categories. And in doing that, I might find like, oh, there's this other category that I missed, Oh, there are these subcategories underneath it. I might find that parents, really care about there being an instructor facilitating friendships among kids who are shy. But then I might also realize within that category, it seems to only matter for families with kindergartners and first grades. It's rarely mentioned for upper grades. And so you kind of delineate the um, data and see nuances in that way. It's not... um, You know, bandwidth is limited. So if there's like 10,000 responses, it's not necessarily to go through and label, you know, 10,000 responses. What I tend to do is pull 100 random one. If I feel like I'm still learning things and new categories and insights are coming up, I'll pull another 100. And at some point, it feels like my knowledge is saturated. um, And that's when I feel like it might be done. It also is helpful to um, have another colleague do a similar exercise they might see categories, you know, that you didn't see, you know, and so that's also helpful as well. I think that also speaks to reducing um, bias, too. And then for um, the other qualitative data you might commonly get is that these focus groups are town hall meetings. And the teams I've worked with, what we like to do, similar strategies, just download everything first, is we would have um, shortly after these meetings, we would get together in a room with post-its and just any key things that we remember or took notes on that were important during these meetings. we would jot like, you know, one idea on each post-it and then stick them up on like, we would just take off, take up like the walls of like an entire conference room and just stick them anywhere, just downloading all the information at first. Um, one technique I love, especially for a focus group is each person gets a different colored post-it. And so when you're looking at all the data, you know if like, is this all coming from one person or is this actually coming from 10 different people mentioning similar things? And taking these post-its, you know, once everything's downloaded, what we um, would do is just move them around and cluster them into different categories and groups that feel like there's something and thematic um, not even worrying about like what the theme is or what it's called, but like this feels like something, that feels like something, and then starting to discuss what themes have emerged um, and what's important within these themes, what can we address, what we can't address, and like rearranging them and looking at other themes, you know, using different frameworks. Like we'll use a journey map that maps the start and end of a journey like attending a math fair for instance and reclustering it based on you know parts of the journey that you know the smooth sailing for families parts that had pain points those post it might go underneath um, a line and just seeing what part of the experience needs work and so just playing around with different frameworks different themes just whatever makes sense for um, the context that you're doing the analyses in but yeah and i would also say um, Important to kind of trust the process, it might seem overwhelming at first with all this qualitative data coming in, and what I found is if you you know what your goal is you're, you you um, are clear on that from the beginning right for like why are you um, seeking feedback from families, then just kind of playing with the data, you know clustering them, figuring out the themes, and just kind of letting the insights emerge through that process. Um, usually helpful things will will emerge. I really appreciate that reminder about
0: trusting the process. I certainly know from my experience it can feel really overwhelming to look at a huge spreadsheet of feedback. We were actually just, I was looking at one of those this morning and thinking how on earth are we going to make sense of this? Um, And just reminding yourself that if you start small themes always do emerge eventually, you just have to trust it. So, um, of course, we're each coming to this analysis with our own set of beliefs, our own prior experiences. So, David, I'm curious how you think about minimizing bias when you're analyzing feedback from families.
3: Yeah, it's a great question. And I think it was one of the big themes we got in the beginning. People are definitely thinking about this. Um I mean, I think there's, there's sort of three things we maybe need to think about in, in sort of a, a large scale. I mean, one of them is, is this idea of sample bias, right? You know, how do we make sure that who we're asking is actually representative of our larger community? And that can be really hard, particularly with the way in which we gather feedback. You know, we, we have a focus group and the people who come to the focus group are not really representative of the community. And, and maybe we don't have a way of knowing that um we hand out a survey and you know we don't necessarily know about who is responding to the survey and sometimes we decide that what we need to do is gather information on the respondents so we put in a couple of questions about demographics you know are you a member of this group do you live in this part of a you know subcommunity of our larger community are you the parent you know, as kathy said you know are you a parent of a kindergartner first grader second grader these things allow us to associate results with with the particular representation that we're looking for um that can be really helpful but the reduction of the anonymity sometimes is a way that we lose honesty you know people think they're asking me questions about me maybe I won't be as honest and forthcoming because it could be tied back to me so so these challenges are very real um i think one of the ways is just to be intentional about it um you know, really pay attention to who is providing a voice, who is there, and are we making efforts to make sure that we are, for example, if we're going to do things live and in person, are we going to them? Are we going to where the groups exist already? Are we, you know, I used to go to churches and and local groups and things like that. Instead of asking people to come to me, I could go and get feedback from, from groups that already existed that offered better community representation. Um, but beyond sample bias, I think there's also this question, which is related, is this idea of self-report bias, that when we ask people their opinion, the people who tell us their opinions are the people who have strongly held opinions. And so you often hear you know, a lot of very, very strong positive voices and a lot of very, very strong negative voices. And we don't hear from people who are sort of in the middle or they have opinions, but they, they're not strongly held or they're not you know really, really up in arms about it. And so, you know, I think we've all probably been to a community meeting where people are screaming about something, and this is the most important thing, and we often make the mistake of agreeing. Well, they're yelling, they're very loud, they must be representing the community, and the loudest voices need to be heard. Don't get me wrong, schools are political entities. We do need to pay attention to those people, but I think it's a mistake to sort of take their voices as being the, the most important voices or being representative. Um, to this end, I think you know if one of the things that we're trying to do is is actually reduce bias, a great way to do that is just to increase completion, increase participation. And so if we're talking about you know, going to meetings and having focus groups and things like that, as I already said, going to where the people are instead of asking them to come to you is a great uh, strategy. I think also with surveys, You know, we we overuse surveys, especially during the pandemic. I think, you know, all of us felt a little over surveyed, Uh, but they're a wonderful tool. And if you use them well, they can get you a lot more voices because people maybe don't want to come to you or they're maybe not as community engaged. And I think, you know, they work the best, at least in my experience. Surveys work really well when they're short, they're to the point, Mm -hmm. and they make sure to ask the questions that you actually want answered. Um, I work with a lot of schools and districts and, and other entities that put out a lot of surveys and I can't tell you how many times I've worked with people to ask them, why are you asking that question? What's what's the, what do you want to know? And just ask it. And it it sounds so simple and it sounds so silly, but just making sure that we actually ask those questions that we want. Finally, I'll say that one of the points of your question was, was this idea of sort of reducing the analytical bias and, I think, you know, Kathy brought up an excellent example of, of, you know, having extra people sort of double check and, you know, using some sort of, you know, inter reliability piece to this of, you know, you look at it and I look at it, how close are our conclusions? But I think also another way of looking at this is also just having your analyst be someone who's removed, being dispassionate. Um, you know, I, as a person who was a program person and also generally responsible for the analysis in a lot of the places I've been... I have a stake in the game and it's really hard for me to remove, you know, that those interpretations. I want things to be a particular way or I'm asking questions in a way um and I'm I'm analyzing things in a way that sort of drives them towards a particular point even unconsciously. And I happen to have an assistant in my office who is who is gifted analytically and I used to ask him, "Would you please look at this for me? Would you please be the one to do the analysis?" Because he was not as invested in the program. It didn't, you know, create more work for him. It didn't, you know, create different options for him. And so I think that's also a helpful way is that, you know, having someone who isn't a decider, who isn't the person who is responsible, be the person to be the analyst.
0: I love that idea. And this this topic is, is so important, especially if we're using this feedback and analysis to make decisions, making sure we're thinking about our biases throughout the process. So we can move on to our next topic. Let's say we've collected our feedback, we've identified some themes, and so then our next step is going to be to decide what to do with that information, how to take action. Uh, Kathy, how do you decide what to prioritize from the themes that emerge out of the analysis you described?
2: Right, so from... The themes that emerge, I guess, backing up one step, I would say, is to make sure that um, you're separating the solution from the underlying need. And so in one example, in um, an ed tech product I work on, teachers were requesting face recognition for students to sign into the software because it was taking them too long to get started. in the program, and so that came up again and again, and that that was a theme that came up, but really the underlying need was being able to have students um log in more quickly, right and so face recognition was a solution had we you know if we were tied to face recognition as kind of the theme that we were addressing, whether or not we should include face recognition or not, you know, and it would have just been like, no, we're not addressing this theme. There's privacy issues, technology issues, you know, way too many resources. And so being able to separate that. And once you have um, themes of underlying needs or very specific features that are requested that you, you know the underlying need to, what we tend to do in the teams that I've been on for EdTech is just look at it from a cost-benefit analysis. So what, what is the issue? Um, how confident are we that this, this really is an issue? Um, What are the resources that are needed to address this issue? What's the potential outcome? And how confident are we that, you know, doing X, Y and Z would get us to this outcome? And so we had, you know, a long database of all different things that we could do to improve the program. And sometimes there were things that um, really quick to fix, for instance, You know, my students' name may get feedback that, you know, once students' names are past X number of letters, it gets cut off on the screen. And if we go back, talk to the engineers, and they're like, oh, yeah, that would take 30 minutes to fix, we would just go ahead and do it, Um, you know. But if it's like, oh, that would be three weeks of full-time work to fix that, to get their full name on the screen, then we might do a little more research to see, you know, like... How many names are, you know, this long? Like kind of like what is the effect of, you know, having it slightly cut off and figuring out kind of where in the queue that, you know, would be updated and fixed. And we've also get lots of feature requests at at tech companies. For instance, for one product I worked on, there were many requests to add um, a harder coding level at the end. And then there were also requests for easier phonics levels for uh, a language literacy game and another feature request and another feature request. And each of these require a lot of resources. And so what we tend to do here is do a little more research into these requests. Um, You know, if it's something that's freezing the game and students can't continue, then like obviously that's high priority and we go with it. But if it's A coding game, we might look into the data and see how quickly are kids finishing these games, like how many more kids need more levels, and find out that you know, most students, like very few students, are actually getting to the last coding level. And then we look at the phonics request and we might find out from customer support that they're getting multiple daily calls from teachers, especially in kindergarten and first grade, that their students can't play the game at all because it starts out being too difficult, then based on that, we might decide, you know, we would do the phonics first and then figure out the coding down the road. And so um, being able to make that cost benefit analysis is important. And in terms of like gathering these themes and figuring out what to do next, what also has helped us, David has mentioned a couple of times, you know, the question that you're asking should be useful. And so one exercise I like to go through once I've come up with questions for a focus group or questions for a survey is hypothetically think through data that might come in and just think, okay, what would I be doing with this data? And if there's a question where I'm just like, well, that would be interesting, I know, but it's actually not that useful. I would just mix it. Um, very overwhelming to open a survey and be like, you're on question one of, you know, 80. <laughs> we want it short and sweet. So,
0: yeah. Thank you. I I love this idea of weighing the costs and benefits of the different actions you might take and and just knowing like when you have enough information to move forward and when you actually might need to get more feedback and in, in order to make your decision makes a lot of sense. David, can you share what this looks like in practice to act on your feedback when you're working within a school or district that has really limited resources?
3: Yeah. Um... I spent most of my career in <laughs> schools with limited resources um I you know, I think that the question sort of conjures up images of of parents coming in and you know demanding that you have a swimming pool and you know organic lunches for every student and you're struggling to figure out how to pay for textbooks um but i don't I don't think that's really what it's about. I think it's that you know our, our parents our community our people have concerns. And it can be really hard to figure out what to prioritize in your resources in terms of, you know, what, what demands my attention, what demands the limited resources that I have, both financially and in terms of your time. Um, so I think that there's twofold to this. I think um, one of these questions, one part of this is just how do I actually, you know, engage with the community when I have limited resources? You know, I don't have the, the I don't have an analyst on staff, and I can't necessarily pay for someone to come in and do deep analysis, or I don't have you know a good platform for gathering all of this feedback. Um, I think one of the wonderful things about recent technology is that um, you know tools like Google and Microsoft, which which people are already paying for, and and I'm not affiliated in any way, um, but they have pretty robust survey tools, and those tools have built-in analytics. And so you can do some pretty deep analysis with, without any real training. Um, you don't have to, you know, have a degree or, or anything like that. Um, you can really dive in pretty deeply in your data and, and create some pretty flexible surveys to get it. So I recommend just looking at the tool set that you already have. Um, in terms of you know looking at the you know what resources you have to address the questions and to address the problems, I think often we think about complex expensive solutions right off the bat and i mean what kathy said earlier i think is is so on point is you know really thinking through what do answers to questions look like what do solutions look like what resources does it take and, and really thinking through ahead of time how, what does it look like to address this problem you know a, a wonderful example i can think of is is one i so wish i could take credit for um it was in a district i was working with but not working for um is that we had this district and they had a problem on one of the buses. And, you know, one of the buses would, you know, every morning they would come into school and they would not have a problem. But in the afternoon on this one particular bus, there was one kid who just would wreak havoc and, you know, was bullying other kids, was attacking, was putting hands on, was creating dangerous situations. The bus driver was constantly having to pull over and tell everybody to sit down. And parents were up in arms. You're not keeping my kids safe. You know there was there was huge problems, and they said we need to address this problem. What are we going to do? And of course they start floating solutions like we'll hire a bus monitor. We'll hire somebody to sit on the bus and, and keep this kid you know from doing these things. We'll install cameras and we'll we'll monitor the bus with with cameras. And since we can't just do it on one, maybe we'll do it on on a subset of them. Um, we'll with the police department and see if there's something they can do. And all of these solutions were, were very expensive, both in terms of funding, but also in terms of the time attending to it. And at some point, they realized the most important person for this conversation is not actually in the room, and that's the bus driver. And so somebody got the bright idea. Let's go get the bus driver and, and bring him in here and see what he says. And the bus driver said, oh, I can solve that problem for you. No problem. The issue is that in the morning, because of the way the route is constructed, I pick this kid up last. And then we go right to the school, and she's on the bus for three minutes. In the afternoon, I follow the route in the same direction, and so this kid gets dropped off last. And so she's on the bus the entire time. And if you just let me negative one the route, I'll drop her off first, and then it won't be a problem. And this was a zero cost solution that effectively addressed and completely solved the problem for them. And so I think sometimes, you know, this is a pretty extreme example, but I think sometimes, you know, we're always looking for, you know, elegant, complete, you know, these, these solutions that really solve and address our problems where we think they are. But in fact, you know, we can be flexible, and we don't necessarily need a ton of resource to solve the problems that we have.
0: Thank you for that story. Such a such a great example of how you can listen to concerns, you can act on them without needing to spend a bunch of time or money. It's just really a question of totally. making sure you're listening to the right people. So the last step in our feedback process is to follow up with families. Um, and David, I'm curious why why do you think this is an important step that we follow up with families at the end of this process?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it goes back to the very first thing I said, which was, you know, about maintaining transparency, you know, closing the loop with people and letting them know how, you know, the the time and energy and effort they put into sharing information with you is being respected. And even if you don't give people what they want or what they've asked for, what they've communicated, even if you didn't end up considering their data really important as an important part of the process... Just coming back and talking with them and, and explaining this is what we did with it, this is how we thought about it. this is why we decided what we decided. This is why you know we went with what you wanted or not with what you wanted. Um, I think those things are, are so important and and I think it goes back to doing that at every step of the way, being super transparent. you know I mean if I'm going to give out a survey to people, I want to know I want them to know that that survey, is being taken seriously um i had a, an experience very very recently in my own community i have kids of my own and um the, my the school my daughter is supposed to go to next year um they had a community meeting where they were theoretically asking for feedback about a change that they were making and people who showed up to the meeting learned that they'd already decided to make that change and instead of actually gathering feedback they were just disseminating the information about the plan and People were extremely insulted, you know, and and I think that's, you know, a really important part of this process is just to say we're gathering feedback because we want to know or we're just doing information. And and so closing that loop is is very, very important. I can give you an example from my own practice is um, I had this group of parents, small rural district not a lot of resource, um, not a lot of students. And I had this group of very, very invested parents who wanted a language immersion program being put into a small elementary school. And they had all sorts of research and articles and reasons why this was a really, really good program. And my superintendent said, you go talk to them. And I said, well, what what can I offer? What can I do? Nothing. You can't do anything. But go talk to them. And they need to be heard because they're, you know, a very, very loud group. And, you know, we want to we want to get them involved. So I went and I talked to these people and they were extremely passionate and and very well reasoned and had tons and tons of information as to why this was the right thing to do. And so I talked to them about it and I said, you know, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll look into it. I'll see what it would take and, and how this could work in our school. And I'll really entertain the notion. I said, I don't have the authority to give you what you want but I can do the legwork and do the research. And so I went to the superintendent, I went to the principal and I went to the board and I asked, here's what it could look like and how do I do this? And I figured out where the money could come from and, and how this worked. And ultimately the decision came down that we needed 30 families, we had 30 kids, we needed 30 as the magic number. And so I went back to the parents and I said, here's what I did and here's what we need. And I need to know from you that we have a solid commitment of 30 and then I can go advocate for this with the board. And I can go advocate with the superintendent. and I can go say, this is how we're going to do this. And they said, fantastic. We'll go do that. And so they went out in the community and they talked to their friends and they talked to people in their churches and their organizations. And they found out who was interested. And they got back to me and they said, we've got 12. I said, I, I need 30. And they said, give us more time. Give us more time. Okay, I'll give you more time. And they came back and they had 15. and. I said, you know, we need 30 to make this economically viable, to make this make sense. You know, we just can't do it. I'm really sorry. It's not going to happen. And they said, okay, they understood. And the fact that I was able to just close that loop and, and you know, they, they all felt like they'd been heard, like I tried, like I entertained it, like I took them seriously and I think that was really, really important is that, you know, I didn't just dismiss them and say, shh, just cost too much money. That'll never work here. We can't do that in our community. But that I actually took them seriously and then actually got back to them instead of just letting this thing die on the vine. And I think that's a really great way to just respect people, um, community members, parents, people really want to know that they their investment in your school, in your institution Is something that is going to be meaningful and if you don't communicate with them either in the pro or con um, they're going to feel disrespected they're going to feel like you're not hearing them and they're going to stop coming to you
0: yeah thank you another great story and and back to this theme of transparency that has definitely popped up throughout about building trust and creating a culture where families feel heard so Kathy, this is our last question. I'm hoping you can share some strategies for exactly that, for ensuring that families feel heard and that they're excited to share feedback in the future when we come to them with more questions.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I loved what David mentioned earlier about having it be very clear what part of the process um, you're in. You're like, not bringing in family for feedback for something you can't change, if you're not upfront and transparent about that. And it reminds me of um, in ed tech when I'm working on products for kids and bringing kids in. um, You know, there there were times where we we show them the product and it was almost like they were just trying to give us a stamp of approval. Like, this is great, it's fun, I love it. Um, And then later on, you know, I realized as I was doing more of this research, like this isn't really helpful or working out. And we realized that we had to make it clear to kids that their feedback was extremely valuable and it would impact the process. And so, you know, I would say things at the beginning of these um like design research sessions with them, you know, like, you know, I'm an adult. Everyone who made this is an adult. We're we're not kids. You're the expert because this is for kids and you're a kid. And I'm actually not sure if this is good for a kid your age or is it super boring? It should be for like a kid younger or a kid older. And so we really need your feedback so that we can, you know, make this better for kids your age. And then they come in and they're, they feel like they have a view that we need and they're more likely to give authentic feedback. And I think, um, you know, this isn't a tech, but I feel like it really applies to anyone that you're looking to gather feedback from. And so with um, focus groups, with families, um, one thing that has worked well um, in my practice is having the notes be projected live during the focus group or during the town hall meeting, whatever, you know, group that you've gathered. And what's come out of this, I think a few things. One is families see that you know what they're saying is being recorded and will be reflected on later. Like someone's taking notes, like these are important things. And what's been actually um especially productive is people will see the notes about what they said and either, you know, correct it like, oh, actually, like what I meant to say was X, Y, and Z, or they'll expand on it. And they'll be like, oh, and that that's important to me because, you know, let me tell you why or someone else might build on their ideas and just, you know, be like, oh, I really agree I agree with what, you know, so-and-so said about that. I would also add X, Y, and Z, and there would be like a little bullet point underneath that note. And so people see their ideas kind of building on each other, evolving and getting, being elaborated, which we have found to be very productive in getting, you know, deeper levels of feedback and conversations as well. Um, and then we've mentioned having... Parents be part of, you know, every step of the process as much as they want to be. And in the context of EdTech, I worked on a teacher's dashboard, and so we got feedback on what teachers wanted to see in a dashboard for this particular product. Um, made it very clear, you know, we've we're revamping the dashboard because we've gotten, you know, feedback from teachers that it's too confusing to use X, Y, and Z, and so we wanted kind of overhaul it. And then once we got that feedback, I circled back with the teachers who were interested in giving more feedback or just and some just wanted to kind of see where their feedback went, some wanted to give more. And if they wanted to give more, we'd do a 10-minute call. Feel like the teams gathered this feedback, you know, this is what we heard, and they mocked these three different dashboards. Um, would love to get your thoughts on them, you know, quick thoughts on them. And then at the end, circling back with everyone who gave us feedback i mean, like, this is the new thing. And this is how we decided that this is what the dashboard would be. And I think, um, you know, there were teachers who were just like, great, I'll like, you know, kind of keep tabs on what's happening when I have time or want to be there were teachers, like, I just want to provide feedback, show me the final thing, like I'm good. And there were ones who really wanted to be involved along the way. And I think you'll get that with families um, as well. And You know, and following them at the end, um, when we've done product testing in classrooms, I've gone back to schools and done presentations where, you know, hey, this is what the product looks like when we started, you know, testing that with your classroom. And then we found out, you know, this icon made no sense to anyone. And so we changed it to this other icon. And I think part of what gets families um, excited and, you know, the students that we've worked with to continue giving feedback, is seeing their feedback making an impact and having that loop closed, as David said, matters a lot. And, um, you know, for new kids who step in, like they're giving us feedback for the first time, I'll sometimes show them examples of, you know, this is what this product used to look like. And then we got feedback from other kids like you now, now it looks like this, but like, you know, but we still want to make it even better. And so we're going to show it to more kids and that's why you're here and just being. approachability goes a long way, like really listening. And like a common theme, transparency goes a little like a long way. I think um, can't change, you know, can't take all feedback in and make all those changes. But being transparent about what was done and what wasn't done and why um, matters a lot.
0: So many great topics in there, treating our families like the experts that they are, closing that loop, showing them how their feedback made a difference, and and this idea of feedback being a culture, being an iterative process where we're hearing from families, we're making changes, and then we're going back to to hear what they think of the changes, yeah. So we talked about gathering feedback, we talked about analyzing feedback, acting on it, and following up with families. And there were um, some key themes that sort of emerged throughout our conversation that I think um, we all touched on in our, in our conversation here. So first, um, really understanding the why. So before you write a survey or invite parents to a meeting, really making sure you know why you're asking for feedback and what you're going to do with that feedback. Because uh, this informs the methods you use to gather feedback, how you make sense of it, and ultimately how you act on it. Um, and so if you're if you're not sure why you're asking, maybe maybe it's not time to ask yet. We need to figure that out first. Um, the second theme that that I heard throughout was around transparency, really, in the whole process. Um, so being transparent with families about why you're asking, what you're going to do with their feedback. And this helps you get the answers that you want that are actually going to be useful. And it, it helps parents feel like they're heard and that you're taking their requests seriously. Um, I think the third theme I heard was around being aware of bias, and it can really pop up at any point in the process. So making sure that we're taking steps to hear from a diverse group of families, not just the ones with the loudest voices or the most free time to respond to your surveys. Um, And also being conscious of the biases that we all bring when we we analyze our feedback. Um, And then finally, this idea of creating a positive feedback loop. So checking for understanding. Letting families know what you did with their feedback, so that they know that you're listening, and and so that they feel sh- ready to share next time you ask. And this is what really touches on that point that so many of you, so many of you said you were interested in at the beginning: creating a culture where where families feel welcome and feel heard. So thank you so much, Kathy and David, for sharing your wonderful insights with us and your stories today. Um, I'm going to turn it back over to Emily to wrap us up and transition us to our Q&A session.
1: Well, I just want to echo Maya's gratitude to you, uh, David and Kathy. This has just been a wonderful um, and very quick hour together. Um, You just shared so much great information and stories and helpful strategies. So thanks for being here with us. Um, We are going to share the recording of today's um, discussion so you can listen to it again or um, share it out with your team. But we also have another wonderful resource uh, for you and your team, and it's our family survey tip sheet. Um, We're putting a link to download that tip sheet into chat right now, and we'll also share it out um, in the follow-up email uh, that we'll send to you. Um, And this tip sheet offers six best practices to follow when you're creating surveys for your families. I know we had some questions around what kind of questions to ask and how to craft those questions, and this tip sheet um, will be super helpful in uh, guiding you in that. All right, let's go to some questions. We're getting close to the top of the hour, but um, maybe we'll just stay a minute or two extra to get through um, some of the really great questions uh, that have come in. So um, maybe, David, this is one for you, um, since you've you've been uh, feet, feet on the street there in schools and districts, but what are your suggestions for coordinating surveys between the district, the school, and individual teachers? As you mentioned, um, we can sometimes get a little survey happy, so just making sure we're not tapping out our, our parents?
3: Yeah, it's a really great question. And, you know, I mean, I think everybody felt like they had way too many of them, you know, (laughs) especially during all that remote time. Um, you know, typically having, you know, one person or one group of people who's responsible and can coordinate can help you in a, a number of ways. One is just for the sake of coordination. Um, You know, making sure that we're not sending three or four out in one week and then, you know, a huge lull that we can space them out if we need to. Also making sure that there's no redundancy, Um, you know, making sure that, you know, a school isn't asking the same questions a district might be asking or, you know, looking for where there's overlap. Um, I always say short surveys work better. I think, you know, Kathy has has mentioned a few times that, you know, somebody opens a survey and they see how long it is. They might not come back to it. Um, And, you know, just being able to shorten those surveys because of some of those redundancies I think is, is really helpful. And then I think, you know, the last piece of that is ensuring consistency that we are asking the same things in the same ways when we are asking them so that Mm -hmm. the data in between surveys could be, you know, used together in conjunction so that they're, they're all augmentative. And I think all of those things sort of combined together can make sure that we are not overusing surveys. We're not surveying people to death and that, um the intentionality is, is all there. So I've just found that you know having a single person or, or a single entity coordinate across these these multiple schools has been a really huge boon.
1: Yeah, those are some great suggestions. And that um consistency between surveys, um, that's a great suggestion. Hadn't really thought about how you would get different questions asked in such different ways between people. So Yeah. Um, uh, probably a question for both you, and Kathy and Maya, you too, but um, what are your thoughts about anonymous surveys? Um, this particular uh, attendee asked, said that their community is often very cautious or hesitant to respond if they know that their name is on it or their email address is being tracked. Kathy, do thoughts. you have any initial I thoughts? To, yeah. I don't want to dominate um. the
2: QA. <laughs> <laughs> We, we, we've we done some anonymous surveys before. And I think um, like one way of going about it, if um, there's concern that people won't respond because they know that they're being, you know, they're, and sometimes there's actually like great reasons to do like anonymous surveys, if it's kind of um, a topic that people might be less comfortable, you know, sharing their experience about, if it's like a survey on like school climate and bullying, right, um, you know, like people might, might be more comfortable, so I think it depends on the context. But I think um, one technique that could work well is, you know, not asking a contact info is optional, and not asking for it until the the very end of the survey, because by then they have put in their responses. And then they can decide, you know, whether or not they're comfortable with their names being attached to it or not. I think. Um, you know for some of our questionnaires we're very upfront that this will not be shared with anyone or published with anyone we're not going to quote anything with your name on it and so having a privacy policy that makes respondents comfortable Um, if you're asking for contact information you know i think understanding why they're hesitant to give contact information and why You want their contact information, like knowing that as well, like what's the value being like, you know, we would love to follow up for these any responses because of X, Y and Z, Um, you know, and like giving a choice. Do you want us to follow up by email or phone or just do not follow up with me, right? Giving those options as well, I think um, also also helps. But oh, I guess one other thing is if you're collecting other data that helps you kind of like. My after school data example, like if you if they're able, they're willingness to share, you know, data, like what grade is their child and things that are more group based. And then you're able to pull themes and understand which types of families, you know, these different concerns are impacting without their names. Um, that's also helpful and keeping them more anonymous. Um, yeah
3: can i piggyback on that because i think that's all mm-hmm. great Yeah, absolutely. i, I think, I think it's, it's helpful framing to think about oh. it not as a binary anonymous or non-anonymous which is often how we talk about it but as kathy yeah. is saying you know there's fully anonymous where you don't ask anybody any questions about themselves there's fully identified where you ask them specifically to identify themselves and then there's sort of this middle ground where you ask them questions about themselves so that you can associate information and thinking about that along a spectrum, people often have fears about our ability to identify them based on the descriptive information that they give about themselves, right? And so, I, th- you know, to read into the question that's being asked, if we have these communities that are not really, you know, that they're nervous about saying what they're saying, this often happens in communities where we have marginalized populations or historically marginalized populations and that they may be nervous about volunteering information about themselves and then having it somehow come back on them or come back to their community and so thinking about the trade-offs as to you know if people aren't going to answer a survey because it's collecting information, either identifiable information or group identifiable information, um, leads to a lack of honesty and a lack of feedback, then going to an anonymous survey is, is a way of sort of increasing that feedback. But it runs risks of, you know, reporting biases and things like that, that, you know, if, if you're just sort of public, publicly posting, hey, go to this survey link anybody can answer and they have no, you know, they don't even necessarily need to be attached to your community. People can answer it multiple times. And so you can get some abuse that way. And so thinking about ways in which you can maybe control the use of the survey, like sharing the link for a limited time, only sharing it at particular events, things like that can sort of help control some of the potential damage that could happen in a fully anonymous survey. But I think, you know, inherent in the question is, you know, how do I get people to answer surveys when they're reluctant? Anonymity can certainly be one of the ways to do that.
1: Yeah, that was a lot of helpful things to think about. And I think Kathy's point of why do you want that information is a great guiding (laughs) question in, in making that decision about um, how to proceed. 100%. So we are um, past our time almost by five minutes, but I'm going to go ahead and take, let's do two more questions and then we'll wrap up. And those of you that need to to go on with your day, we totally understand. We'll be sharing the recording and you can catch up on the, the last of the Q&A. Um, both of these n- next questions are really about trying to to get those voices that, that are often harder to get or, or unheard. Um, so one is around um, what are your thoughts about making um, phone calls to families, to you know, to specific families to gather feedback, um, you know, from perhaps groups that you have a harder time getting typical response from? David, do you want to leave with this one?
3: <laughs> sure. Um, so I, I personally have never done that Um uh, i've never sort of reached out individually i think people can be put on the spot um, the only time i've ever sort of called somebody for feedback is when they've mentioned that they want to give it to me um what i have found though is that um communities organize themselves right that you know within within whatever community you're in there are sub communities you know people go to different churches, people play in sports leagues, you know, the, you know, some students are part of the Boy Scouts or the Girl Scouts, there's a dance troupe, and, you know, adults, parents, community members, you know, the the Knights of Columbus, you know, that these are all places where people gather, and they're representative of particular sub segments of your community. And going to those places can be a really powerful thing to do to say, hey, I'm where you are, and I think I said this earlier, you know, expecting people to come to you all the time really creates this dynamic of the only people who come in are the ones who care. And if you really want to start to say, I want to reach out to more communities, I want to reach out to a more diverse group of people, going to where they are is a really good instinct. And I think that's where the idea of, of calling people comes in. Um I'm not necessarily against it, but my, my gut instinct, I've never done it, so I can't really evaluate it as a strategy, but but my gut would say that that a person who just gets called out of the blue and said, hey, what do you think about this, may be a little reluctant to give honest feedback in a way that they might be less reluctant to do so if they were part of a group that already exists. and you know, hey, I'm just here to, you know, find out what, you know, the parents of Girl Scout Troop 17 think about, you know, such and such elementary school program about this. You know, let's talk about it. I'd love to get your feedback. And they're already there and they're in their group and they feel like, you know, they often feel more comfortable and willing to share because they're part of that group. And I and in my experience, they appreciate that people have come to them.
2: Yeah, and I May think I when you can that? collaborate. Oh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say what David was saying about, like, going to where they're at. Um, You know, for products that I've worked on, we noticed you get a very unique subset of families that can drive their kids to Palo Alto in the middle of a weekday to do these, you know, research sessions to build products. And so we started partnering with libraries, for instance, you know, all over the area, going out to libraries and being there where they're at. Um, In terms of phone calls, times that I have done... Phone calls are more of a follow up. Like I used to also wait um, around like bus stops, like where families just are waiting for things to do, right? And like talking to them there if they're open to it. And if they're like off to catch the Caltrain or hop on a bus, you know, they might be like, oh, you know, you can call me. We can talk more later. Um, You know, here's my number. We can continue that. And so getting that invitation from them first, either through already meeting them. Or having that be part of a survey, like, can we call you for, um, you know, five to 10 minutes, you know, making it clear it won't be a one hour call. But, yeah.
0: I think I can jump in from the parent powered perspective. We've sometimes used phone calls as a really open ended way to gather feedback, so not necessarily on a specific question, but. Um, just like how's it going with the program? What 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 do you think? Um, you know, are you are you liking it? Do you have questions? Do you have concerns? And and the families I've talked to have really appreciated that sort of check-in call and it's opened the door to to providing more feedback. Um, but like David and Kathy said, if you have like a really specific question you're trying to get feedback on, people may not be as open to it if you're if you're calling them out of the blue. Yeah, that check-in is
1: is so valuable in so many different ways, even if you maybe don't get that kind of survey feedback from it, but uh, that reach out can help break down barriers to maybe responding um, you know, to a group meeting or a survey down the line. So that could be a, a good piggyback to it. Well, we have really reached our time together at the end of it. Um, But thank you again, Maya, Kathy, and David for being here and for all of you who tuned in today and for all of these fabulous questions. Um, I wish we could get through more of them, but we appreciate your sending them in. I did also just want to quickly thank Parent Powered, Maya just mentioned um, Parent Powered, uh, for sponsoring today's webinar. And Parent Powered's Family Engagement Program um, is an evidence-based program for families with children birth through eighth grade that it does include regular surveys to families to make sure they're getting the support they need to engage with their children's learning. Um, so, if you'd like to learn more about the Parent Powered program, um, we encourage you to visit the URL on your screen. We'll also put that in chat right now. And we'd love to talk with you um, about how the program can help um, strengthen Those uh, partnerships with families and um, help with your your feedback efforts. Um, We are looking forward to um, being back together on April 5th for another Parent Powered sponsored webinar. Um, This time we're going to be gearing up for summer break. I know we're all looking forward to that. And we'll be sharing lots of strategies um, for families to keep learning going over the summer months um, so students can have that strong start in the fall. Um, You can learn more about that webinar and register at the link on your screen and in chat. Um, We really enjoyed being here with you today, and we appreciate your time, and we appreciate all you do um, in your schools and communities, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your afternoon or evening.
0: We hope you enjoyed this EdWeb podcast. If you'd like to receive a CE certificate, you must watch the video recording. Recordings and quizzes can be found in the EdWebinar archives. Please visit home.edweb.net slash podcasts for more information.